Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and virtual events. And during our second hour, we spend a little bit more time on a subject. And today we'll be talking about having those hard conversations. So you want to stay tuned for the entire show. So go ahead, submit your questions. And you know what, Ken? Let's dive into those questions. And we'll get into our first question that it looks like. Did we lose uh, Ken here? Peter Sargent in Round Rock, Texas. Any comments on the production on the Disney Plus Live of the Sir Elton John concert from Dodger Stadium? Let's go with Courtney. Well, I was able to catch the last uh, 30 minutes or so of it. I didn't realize it was on until I got an email. I was going through my email, and suddenly I saw, oh, it's live streaming. I knew they were playing at Dodger Stadium. Um, it was a good finale. Elton picked the right time to retire. I'm, I'm glad he, he went out and, and did a good, uh, a great tour and toured a lot of cities and ended up in Dodger Stadium. The production was uh, interesting. I, if I were a cameraman that did a lot of live events i'd be a little bit worried because of all the number of robo cams it seems that they were using all the uh, uh front of house or down front cameras that are at stage edge were all operated robotically there was one one steady cam operator and of course there were camera operators at, at midfield uh with long lenses to do that stuff and they the arrangement of the led screens was good so that they didn't have any uh feedback from their imag because uh, they were on the left and right side and above the stage, above all the performers' heads. So that was good. Um, They had fireworks at the end, so it was pretty well staged. uh, And the coverage was pretty good. It was a little too cutty for me. They they had all those cameras, and by God, they were going to use them. So they were cutting around a lot. Uh, which so you mean did, the visuals just like just so too many angles happening? Yeah, yeah. Too you know they cut to a low angle, then a high angle, then a long shot, then a wide shot, then, you know, and then a drone shot over the top of the uh, stadium. Apparently, they could fly the drones over the areas where the people weren't, so they kept them pretty well, you know, over the top of the roofs of the stadium, back of the stadium. Um, and I didn't. I, there were some sweeping shots that looked like uh, they could have had a sky cam in there. Uh, you know, a cable cam, but uh, I think it was just a long jib arm at the back uh, okay. to get some sweeping shots over the over the crowd. But that that's my opinion. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, it's it's. I'm working on a lot of concerts, and and it is a it it it's a real sickness when you, especially when you have someone really big, or this is the last show they're going to do for a long time or ever. That you never you want to we're going to pull out all the stops, you know. So we're going to they give the director pretty much carte blanche to get whatever they want and you end up with um, a lot of cameras <laughs> you know and so so anyway so i think that 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 is probably related to that to that challenge i i i've grown to believe that a lot of cutting is a director saying this artist isn't good enough to hold the space you know i'm gonna i'm gonna make it energetic because i'm gonna i'm gonna re and i've literally heard directors say we're gonna in, inject energy into the you know, into the, uh, uh, the show. And I think that that is, it's not, it doesn't respect the artist. I don't think that Elton John, for instance, even at the age that he's at would need anybody to add anything. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying it should be a single camera, but I think that there is a, 
you know, for good, really good artists. There are definitely artists that need a lot of cutaways, <laughs> but but there, but I don't think he's one of them. And so, um, so I think that that I think that that's the problem with a lot of concert coverage right now. Next question from Paul Valhus in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, "What is a good video resolution converter? Prefer ad-free and easy to use." Go ahead, Richard. Um, personally, the one I would use is Compressor from Apple if you're on a Mac or Handbrake. Um, tend to be the two that I would go to first, especially Compressor. It's not free, but hey, it is ad-free. And Alex? Yeah, yeah I, I, exactly what Richard said. I, I use Compressor for most of the stuff that I do. Um, and otherwise, for a free kind of open source, basically FFM, MPEG front end, uh, Handbrake is a good, good example. And go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, plus one on the handbrake. Um, I'm an Adobe guy. I use Media Encoder, and it's also built into uh, Premiere if you happen to be using Premiere. Next question. Brian Shan from Sydney, Australia asked, would a large scrim provide better lighting for a Zoom call, or is a higher contrast key fill preferred? Mitchell. Soft and big makes it great. Um, if you have a large uh, a, a large key and a scrim in front of it to soften it out um you get that nice wrap around the face which works great and courtney well it depends on your age if you're old and have a lot of wrinkles on your face uh big flat light the bigger and flatter the less wrinkles are shown and and the smoother you look and the younger you look so it's good for uh, uh lowering the age of a person in front of the camera uh if you have beautifully young, beautiful skin, then a hard light can add a lot of contour uh, to your image and can make you uh, a little more mysterious and more flattering in that respect. Uh, but if you're of a certain age, bigger, flatter, and that's why the ring light was really invented because it casts, it surrounds the lens. If it's used properly, uh, it was designed to go surrounding the lens so that there's no light, uh, no shadows that that uh, the lens can see because the light surrounds the lens. And so uh, it was originally designed for medical photography, for taking pictures uh, of, you know, medical procedures so that you wouldn't be confused by a shadow in the photograph. Uh, so it's, it's much more flattering uh, a ring light is, but if, if you're wearing uh, spectacles, anything that reflects a big broad light is going to work better. Go ahead, Bill. What everybody else said, plus just think about it this way, uh, the larger your scrim is, the more power you're going to have to to fill it edge to edge. One of the things that people get wrong is they'll take a big scrim and they'll put a small light source in the middle of it, expecting that to spread out. It doesn't really. I mean, it gives you a little more softness and spread, but as the light spreads out and fills the scrim, that's where you get uh, light hitting your face from different angles to fill in wrinkles and things like that. The other thing is that then power becomes an issue. Scrims, the professional ones are set up in stops. You can get a half stop scrim, a full stop scrim. That is how much light is not making it through the scrim. So as you add more diffusion in front of the light source, you need more light behind it to achieve the same uh, illumination level on the skin of whoever you're lighting. So just understand that as you get bigger scrims, you generally need more powerful light emitting devices to fill them up and make them work properly. And Alex. 
Yeah, and to define a scrim, uh, the it is a it's a it's a large piece of fabric, <laughs> you know. And so uh, sometimes these scrims, sometimes we have these scrims in their mesh, and we put them behind people to actually lower the the um, apparent uh, background, you know. So it's kind of like adding an ND filter to the background behind somebody. Um, but typically, what we're talking about here is a big piece of cloth or a big piece of diffusion. Um, I have uh, three lights going across the front in front of me to get that much larger light. Uh, and and even with uh, models, you know, we, we've done a lot of stuff with, um, you know, pretty high-end models, and we're using giant four-by-fours, four-by-four uh, frames with lights behind them to give them this big, soft light uh, to it. And what I'm about to build, and I'll show pictures of it when I'm done, is a five-foot-wide by three-foot, like, big square, which then I will light with a bunch of lights behind it to create that big diffusion um, and make it look a little less messy than <laughs> these three lights that are kind of haphazardly put up there. So, but but the I would strongly recommend for most of us, um, a and, and for generally for broadcast, um, I think people get into this really moody lighting. Um, it doesn't usually work as well um, for this kind of show um, or, or for a Zoom to have kind of kind of um, a, a moody light is better to have more of a broadcast light where everyone's kind of the same. Next question. Uh, Ari Block Mitch, from uh, Tel Aviv, Israel yeah. asks, do you have backup mains power? What type of generator do you use? And why did you select it? Peter? Well, for home use, I mean, uh, and uh, I'm going to speak from that perspective. I have a, ge a Generac size to my home. Um, because it met the, the safety and noise standards for the uh, area I live in. But in between the Generac and the, and my home switching system, my home power system, I have a power wall as well to keep things alive and well until the Generac comes up to speed. And uh, it's hooked up the natural gas line. And I figure if I lose the natural gas pressure to my house, I've got a more basic problem to worry about. And Courtney? I have UPS uh, on my um, cable connection and on my desktop computer because if power goes on that, it would have to it would go off and have to reboot. And uh, in emergency situations where I lose all power for an uh, extended period of time, I have two uh, deep discharge uh, sealed lead acid batteries that are constantly on charge that have inverters on them, always charging uh, back in my storeroom. So uh, I can pull those out and power whatever electronics I can for several hours off of that in in event of a major blackout. Next question. From Richard Lavery in Belfast. I have a pitch meeting this week, 10 minutes of pitch and 10 minutes of questions. Any advice to create the best pitch? And Richard, if you want to hop on for a second to explain like what kind of pitch, because that might help with context. Um, it could do. Um, the... Uh, essentially, it's a, a, a kind of proof of concept um, pitch. So there is uh, a small grant available, £35,000. They want you to, they've got a very specific deck that you, they want you to make, which is slightly unfortunate. Stunt, you know, kills my creative verve. Um, but um, we've got a deck, it's already submitted. It's nine slides and um, goes through from the basic concept all the way through to the, the financials of it. Um, so just kind of looking for, you know, I thought it'd be an interesting question. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, so two thoughts. First of all, a simple idea told well is better than a complex idea told badly. So, so really narrow down the thought. And to do that, I use a technique someone taught me called the four Ps. So what is the position? Why is it a problem? 
What are the possibilities and what do you propose? And I think if you can tell the story that way, and by the way, Shark Tank or Dragon's Den are great examples. They're a bit twee sometimes, but they're great examples of people going through that chain of thought. So what position do we find ourselves in? Why is that a problem? What are the potential solutions and what are you proposing? You'll make a logical, simple argument people can follow. And Jason? If your deck is already locked in, then I would focus more on the questions half of it. I would do my pitch to as many people as I, you know, I trust that are intelligent that I could listen to and um, listen to their questions and allow that to refine your pitch. Alex? Yeah, I, 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 I think of something very similar to what Nigel was talking about is I, I describe the hole, I show how we're going to fill the hole, and I show that I have a shovel. <laughs> like you know, like that I can actually fill the hole, and those are the three things that I that I worry about when I when I do pitches. Is like here's the problem, here's how we're going to fill the problem, and then I got to prove to you that I can fill the problem. You know, and so um, so that's how I kind of approach that. One of the things that I'm notorious for is I will build a a twenty slides, you know, or ten or fifteen or whatever slide pitch. I've got thirty slides sitting in the in the in the offing, you know, that I can bring up at will. And I, I got to tell you, the impre- it, it really impresses people when you do a presentation and then they ask some random question and then you pop up a slide that answers their question. And that gets back to what Jason was talking about, which is if you do a, the presentation a bunch of times, you start getting, you know what the questions are that are going to come up. So then you build slides that answer those questions and illustrate them. And it really makes f- people feel like, oh, I did think of that because you didn't, you didn't stump me because I spent time on a slide. <laughs> you know, so so it's, it, um, it's a good way to kind of fill that in when it comes to proving that you can do it. And Bill. One of the things that I used to do in pitch meetings that I was very successful for me was I tried to engage their thinking and make them respond. And I would often use a thing like this. I've looked at this topic and there's a couple of ways I could go. And I'd be interested in hearing the panel's uh, suggestions on which might be better. And then I go on to the next thing. And I just was planting a little seed in them to be engaged, to think about how you would do it. And often that let that you've only got 10 minutes expand to 15 or 20 minutes because I'd engage them in thinking about how to think about my pitch in their way rather than just listening to how I thought about it. And I just want to pull in uh, a comment here from John Snyder. He says, if you can have a single focus that you repeat from multiple angles, what's the story of your pitch? And that runs throughout. Um, I'll also add a couple, three specific points. One, you shared that since this is for a grant, so coming at it from the perspective that in whatever project scope or grant scope that they've explained, there are certain bullet points are certain points that you're going to want to hit. So making sure that in your presentation that you have addressed all those questions. Um, also, two, I was in Techstars, an accelerator or pre-accelerator last year, Techstars Women, and pitch our whole, the whole time was to get to that pitch at the end. Now, ours was a three-minute pitch, but your opening is like you want to land your opening, whether that having uh, a, an interesting fact or point and start building your story from there and then landing um, that landing that close part of it as well. And then the third point is it has you're asking about the pitch. But what I've read from your question is it says 10 minutes for the pitch and 10 minutes for the questions. So you want to, whether with the people on your team or people that you've gotten feedback from, think of all the different ways or all the different questions that they could ask and then just being prepared for those. So I would say those are the three ways that I would prepare for um, that type of presentation. Go ahead, Peter. 
Yeah, this reminds me somewhat of orals, and I'm going to go back to what Jason said. Since you've already submitted the presentation, focus on the questions, get what Liberty has said, say, get lots of people to ask you questions outside of there to focus on them. Um, be wary of what the rules of engagement are. Um, Alex's point about having extra slides is useful, but can void the presentation. Because depending on what the rules of engagement are, you have your ten, you have your pre, your predetermined slide deck, and if you go outside of that, that could void it. And be present. I'll add that as the cherry on top. Just being present because you we get you know presentations they can cause some anxiety. Just whatever that routine is going in those deep breaths, the yoga, whatever it is, um, so that you can be present. Next question from Diego Nush from Barcelona, Spain, took my A10 Mini out to do in-person training. Purpose was to switch quickly between my two PCs. House projector and NEC uh, P525UL would not take my A10 output, but was fine with any of the two PCs HDMI signal. Could an MDHX decimator save my day? Let's start with Peter. Short answer is yes, but before you went down that path, because they're hard to come by these days, um, I found, I do these exact same thing once a month and I, I use a streaming bridge to get me to the projectors, to be honest with you. And it seems to work. Courtney. Well, it depends. Um, I'd say maybe, uh, it depends that projector. I looked at the specs on it and, uh, it's compatibility. It does say it's native resolution is 1920 by 1200, which is not a resolution that the ATM outputs. However, the input scaler on that computer says it supports 1080p, 1080i, 720p. So the input scaler should be able to handle it. Um, the, uh, MDHX will only output, uh, I mean, the decimator MDHX will only output standard uh, aspect ratios of 1080p and 740p. So, and maybe 480i, I don't think they even do 480 anymore. But um, you may be getting into trouble with uh, DHCP because I noticed that uh, on the uh, input terminals, they list uh, HDMI as supporting HDMI with HDCP, which is content protection. And if you're... Uh, if HDCP is turned on the output of the ATEM, then the projector will just mute the image and not, not output it. So that may be what the problem is you're running to. But also make sure you're not set into a mode on that projector where you're uh, projecting all the pixels, which would put it into 1920 by 1200 mode, which it would not be able to uh, see the 1080p, which is 1920 by 1080. And Mitchell? All of the above are correct answers. Um, had a similar situation at a big venue here in town, and a decimator did fix the problem for me. And Jason? I, I think the issue may very well not be resolution, but frame rate. Um, I think there's there's a good chance that your ATEM is set for, um, you know, 2997-5994 instead of, you know, 30p, 24p. I, I, I would... I would start there and then see if you need to go hunt down a decimator. Go ahead, Alex. 
Yeah, remember that the uh, your uh, input into your input number one, if you're set to auto on the ATEM, will be the frame rate that it's being supplied. It'll turn the, it'll move the the ATEM to that. So um, yeah, you want to look at it. You want to hard set your ATEM to a certain frame rate. And then I would output an image from that frame rate without anything plugged into the ATEM. I would output an image of just from the media pool to the projector and just see if it shows up at a set rate, let's say 1080p 2997. Um, and then, yeah, and, and it may be 2997 or it may be 30. You gotta decide, you gotta play with play with those each one of those settings to see if an image or a color comes out of the ATEM into the projector. Um, the other thing to do is when you hook those PCs up, they show up through an HDMI, but at what resolution? You can open up your PC, look at what resolution it's sending it out, and try to make sure that that's a, a, a resolution that the ATEM is capable of. It could be exactly what was talking, what was mentioned before. The handshake, the PC is handing the projector what it wants, which might be 1920 by 1200 or, or something else, um, and you just want to check that as well. Next question. From Gilberto Espichi from Santa Cruz, Bolivia, does anyone know if Zoom ISO Lite includes the over-the-network output ISO OSC command? Go ahead, Alex. I believe it does. I realized that just while rereading this, I was looking at Zoom OSC and the documentation to try to figure this out for you. Um, but I do believe it does have the output ISO, but I'm not 100% sure. We'll try to get back to you. Make sure to ask that question inside of our Discord um, because folks that... We'll definitely know. We'll answer that one, but we'll, we'll try to get back to you on that. Next question. Gary Lund from McKinney, Texas asks, what do you think about Leo Laporte quitting his radio show, The Tech Guy? Alexander? Well, you know, when you do any show for almost 20 years, it's, it's probably enough and he probably deserves the break. I think it's really nice that he is, uh, you know, making room for new talent. He's got a lot of good people there. And uh, I believe he said he was going to have a bunch of different people rotating through the role. So I think it's a good thing. Alex? Yeah, I, I think it was pretty restrictive. You know, one of the problems with the tech guy for, I think for Leo was that, you know, really nailed down his weekends. <laughs> so he had to be at it. There's always this, you know, I've been working with Leo for a long time and there's there's always this, this um, kind of these two things that stuck into the ground, which were that you had to do those two shows um, and it was very hard for him to do anything else. So I think that part of it just gives him more freedom over his schedule and allows him to do other things with Twit. Courtney? Yeah, Leo likes his vacations. And because it's a live call-in radio show, uh, you got to be there <laughs> to answer the questions at the time that it's on. And it's distributed uh, over a fairly broad network. So uh, I think, yeah, I agree with Alex. I think he felt it kind of as a horse collar around his neck and he wanted a little more freedom. And he's been doing it. You know, there's so many... There's only so many times you can answer the same, my printer isn't working, why isn't my printer working questions, you know. Jason, your thoughts? Um, I think, yeah, anyone who's done something for 15 years certainly will get sick of it. And I, I believe this used to be his day job and Twit was his side project. And, you know, it's wonderful to to at least, if I were to guess, think that um, that, that Twit is his main deal now. That's great. And Mitchell. I, I can't speak for Leo, but I can speak for myself when I decided to get out of radio again is because there are so many things outside pushing and pulling uh, and radio demands so much of your attention. So I agree with all the above that uh, perhaps Leo just uh, wanted to have a little more relaxing time of doing what he does well. Next question. 
Next question from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. YouTube Shorts, it feels like some of the standard tools for measuring metrics are missing. Or are they separated somewhere that I'm missing? Go ahead, Alex. I'd be curious which ones that you're looking for in YouTube Shorts. Um, I think that you should find all the ones that matter the most for it. So you're going to see, um, you should see how long someone watched it. You should see, you know, so their average view across a, you know, and, and kind of, you should see the graph of what that looks like. And that's a pretty important one as far as their, um, you know, how they're connecting to it, uh, how many people are watching and how many people liked it. I mean, I think that there may be some metrics that aren't the same as the long form, but I'm not sure if they're as pertinent to uh, shorts as they are for the longer form. Yeah, I was trying to look quickly to see what what it could be that they're looking for. So please feel free to put that in the comments or Discord, and we can definitely continue this conversation. Next question. From Liberty Right, you, Toronto, Canada. And here's the Ontario, excuse me. Uh, what Black Friday holiday gems are on your list? Nigel? So no Black Friday uh, gems for me. I, I wonder, or even Cyber Monday, I wonder whether the impulse purchase will get the better of me at certain times. We'll have to see what these sales are. But I, but uh, Jason showed off his new uh, stream deck this morning. And uh, I have to say that uh, I may ask Santa to, to deliver one of those. I've been seeing people on online talking about that. Jason? Ooh, so shiny. There's no way on earth this is going on sale. Um, but it, it's it's affordable and, you know, build quality is, is pretty good. Uh, not amazing, but pretty good for what it costs. Um, I would challenge people to think of services instead of products. Restream.io, um, you almost certainly have a tier that you don't want to pay for. Far and away, the the best of the year is always Black Friday. So, um, so recenter around that. Thank you for that. Tony? I have a friend that wants a iPhone 13 Pro Max desperately. It is not for me, but I have a friend that is desperate in need of one. So that's on your list, Courtney? I certainly don't need one because I already have two, but uh, Creality puts their 3D printers on sale 30% off on Black Friday. So that's... That's uh, something good. It would be on my wish, wish list if they, uh, you know, I kind of like want to upgrade to the latest S1 Pro version or the S1 Max that prints, you know, 12 inch square print space. But uh, I just don't have room for it. So maybe another time. And Bill. I'm getting confused by the branding because we had Black Friday and we had Cyber Monday. And now I'm seeing all these emails coming across going Black Friday week. And they have specials all throughout the week on different days. And I think they're trying to drive website traffic. And so I just hope the marketers settle down and figure out how we're supposed to think about these things. And they're not suppressing the market going, okay, I'll wait another two weeks until Black Friday comes around. And I won't buy anything until then. It's just a weird circumstance for me. I'm not sure what to do, but I'm not. You're right. Anyway. I, I blame the marketers. I blame us. People have been starting Black Friday sales for like Black Friday month and starting it at the Halloween beginning. Eve. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Next question. Black Friday in July. Next question from Brody Hefner in New York City. Would the panel recommend Speedify to combine a T-Mobile 5G hotspot and cable for internet redundancy? It offers stability via automatic switchover if one internet source slows or fails and will prioritize streaming. Go ahead, Richard. Um, the common wisdom often when Speedify has come up is that no, you should definitely not use Speedify for for bonding. Um, it's just it's just not really designed for it. 
having said that, I have used it and uh, it has been a couple of years since I have and it worked quite well for the system I designed for it. So it can be done whether you should use it and maybe you should just use a, move over to a live view solo um, is, is a different question. Alex? Yeah, it probably works fine for most internet usage and also for live streaming because live streaming usually incorporates a buffer so that there's a little bit of a, there's a lot of error correction there that, that can be that can be applied, especially if you're using something that has something like forward error correction like uh, FEC, uh, SRT, Zixi. Those things are all going to do really well inside of this inside of this platform where you probably won't see it do well is in a WebRTC environment where it's real time. It's trying to hand those frames over as fast as possible. And the jitter that that is that tends to be magnified by multiple internet sources um, tends to not do well on real-time video connections. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, some of us have tinnitus from years in broadcasting. What do you do for relief? Thanks. Bill. I just wanted to do a quick public servicing because I had a bout of tinnitus in my right ear and it turned out after some investigation to be a little thing called an acoustic neuroma. It was a benign tumor on the auditory nerve and I had to have radiation to take care of it. So don't ignore changes in your hearing no matter where they come from because sometimes there is a root cause that can be dealt with if you find it early enough. And so... Uh, it's hard to deal with that. And I understand that for people who had it, I had it for a couple of years. Thankfully, after the treatments, mine went away. But I have tremendous sympathy for people who have to fight this. It's a tough thing to live with. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, for you young whippersnappers out there that don't have it, it's a persistent high frequency or a white noise sound that happens on your upper register. It's from the nerves in your ear actually being killed off by super loud sounds. And if I could go back into a Wayback Machine, I would tap myself on the shoulder and say, take those Cost Pro 4 AA's off while you're on the radio and uh, use something a little more open-ended so you don't have so much noise. As far as what do I do to solve it, I either try not to think about it. And by the way, thanks, Andy, for bringing it up. Uh, or uh, I just think of Rick Astley and it instantly goes away. And Courtney. Yeah, Mitch got it right. Andy has broken the first rule of tinnitus is don't talk about tinnitus because now it's brought attention to mine and I can hear it now. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Ashid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, asked Alexander, what is the difference between the Electro Voice RE27 and RE20? Alexander? Well, I have a RE20 right here, and as you can see, the RE27 is a lot shinier, uh, but uh, that's that's just a cosmetic thing. The The main difference is basically the fact that the RE27 has a neodymium magnet, so it has about a 6 dB hotter output. It overall has a brighter sound to it, which you can dull. There is a switch here. It kind of boosts the, the important points for um, intelligibility in human speech around 3k um, if it doesn't sound good on your voice there is a switch which will attenuate that by about 3 db and it and will sound a little bit more like an re20 it has the same variable d technology in here so uh, your voice sounds mostly uncolored uh, off access which is really good and uh, you don't get that excessive proximity effect base buildup as you uh, talk really close to it, which is one of the reasons why uh, these types of mics have been used in radio since the 60s. Go ahead, Bill. Alexander nailed it. There really isn't much left to say. It just depends. You know, your voice will probably do fractionally better on one than the other, depending on the nature of your voice. But he nailed it. And Mitchell. 
Agreed. And I just want to say it. Neodymium. Next question. Next question from Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. We're finalizing some plans for Giving Tuesday, and I was asked in Facebook how much it matters if we tag the three locations of the projects highlighted, and I had to confess I wasn't sure. How much Facebook actually use for this for live? Go ahead, Alex. Facebook uses very little for live except for money. If you pay them to to you know to help promote your event, uh, you will you you will do better. Um, but other, otherwise, <laughs> there, there's not much uh, viral spread from a Facebook Live anymore. I will add that if if I'm reading this correctly, you were asking about tagging tagging the locations. I would definitely tag the locations. You can't go wrong with that because Facebook shows serves that up to people that are are nearby. So you can definitely tag. Next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, Tony asks, Michael Forrest's telestrating app video, Pencil, for the iPad, is available today at $26.99, soon to be $39.99. How many panelists will be getting it? Go ahead, Alex. I don't even use NDI that much, but I'm still going to get it. <laughs> so it looks like a great app. I, I was able to do some testing with it earlier on, and the pen... Um, Michael, he, Michael really worked on the the quality of the pen experience, and which I which is something that most even my telestrator doesn't do very well, and uh, it's really really nice. So I, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting uh, product. Bill, I'll probably get it, and I don't even use NDI. I just love the fact that he put that much time and effort in developing such a, a useful and needed tool. And Jason. Yeah, same here as a, as a fellow app developer. I respect anyone who's gone through the process and have has has really you know taken the time to refine and, and hone their craft. You got my money. And Tony. So I've been playing with it uh, while we were actually on the air, and I've been actually texting back and forth with Michael about my experience in loading it and. One of the things that I think is important for everybody to know is that you can use it, you can download it, install it free. And then if you decide that it works for you, then you can go ahead and do the upgrade for the $26.99 until the end of the month. And then it will be $39.99. And that's lifetime use. Thanks for that, Tony. Next question. T.J. Asher, Minneapolis, Minnesota, asks, how well does the Insta360 Link webcam work on Windows? Can the framing and zoom be better controlled than the Logitech Brio or C920 cameras? Mitchell? I have a friend that uh, I recommended he get this because Office Hours likes it. And um, he has a work computer, which is a Windows laptop, and he has his fun computer for Zoom, which is his Mac. And uh, what we've discovered working together is that the uh, he can set it up on the Mac with the app to uh, control all of this crazy stuff um, and then just unplug it and plug it into his Windows machine. And he doesn't have to do anything, doesn't even have to run the app. Um, it works fine as long as it's Windows uh, USB compliant. And Alex? Uh, you know, so the, the app that, that it comes with isn't running on a PC, Mitch? Uh, he's not running it. He just... Um, he just unplugs it, it and moves it over. And uh, as long as it's pre-programmed, right, uh, apparently think there's a, there's it, the Windows does. There's a Windows version of the app. And I would be kind of blown away if it wasn't identical to the Mac Mac version, given Insta360's background. So I, um, there, is, there is a Windows and a Mac version, I believe, on their website. Um, there, so. there are, but he doesn't use the Windows app. He just prefers to uh, set it up on the Mac version and then unplug it and move it over. 
Why would he do that? I don't know. That's crazy. Because he can't run it on his, um, his uh, the app can't be installed on a work computer because oh, okay. it's uh, okay. restricted. I guess that would be it. So I guess to, to go back to this question, you can, app, I, I believe that the app on the Windows, I would be blown away. And I haven't done it because I don't, I don't use a PC with the links. Um, just I haven't uh, done it. Um, but uh, but I, I will say that I would be blown away if the app isn't identical on the PC as it is on the Mac. There's no reason for it to be different. Uh, you should be able to control it on the PC um, in a normal environment. And it will absolutely give you, if it does open, it will give you more control than you have over the Brio or the 920. Um, it's, it's, a, it's the best uh, camera app. And, and it's what makes it. It's, the Insta360 link is, is a great camera, but it, there's a lot of use cases where you'd probably be fine with a Brio in the same experience. But the app that controls it and the amount of control is way beyond UVC and way better than anything I've seen as far as controlling a, a web camera. So that's part of, I think the, the software behind it is, is not perfect. Um, I wish that you could have presets across multiple cameras. I wish getting to the cameras was a little bit faster. Um, you know, there's a lot of little things like that, but, but overall it's the best software out there so far. Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris asks, Roadcaster Pro 2 transport case suggestions. I'm looking for something to take the unit on the road with three mics, hard case with pre-made foam preferred, but I could be okay with a soft side in that instance too. Alexander. Well, you didn't say what microphones you need to put in the case. Ace SKB now has a case that does fit the Rodecaster too. It also has a compartment for two Rode pod mics. So that's one option. If you want something that can fit other microphones, you might want to just consider, uh, you know, get the dimensions of all the gear that you have and just find a Pelican case with the, the pick and pull foam and just, you know, formulate it to the size of the gear that you have. Courtney? I would go with a hard case because um, as with most of these mixers that have slide pots, they're fairly vulnerable to any horizontal force that goes against the slide pot. You can break off the... Uh, the uh, slider on the pots. So, and if you put it in a soft side case and you it gets out of your control, like hand it over to the baggage handlers of any of the airlines, you don't know what's gonna end up next to it on that in that plane or slide into it and it could knock the dobs off the, off the unit pretty easily. So always go with a hard case and make sure the foam isn't pressing on uh, the touchscreen or any of the uh, sliders so that it could damage them in vibration. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, if you're if you're serious about traveling with this a lot, I would go in the Pelican case route. Uh, you can do pick and pluck, or you can. There are companies who will make custom inserts for it. If you do go with pick and pluck, my suggestions are you first buy a box of toothpicks and be very careful about laying out where everything's going to go, particularly because you want to leave at least three rows of pick and pluck foam between any two uh, insets. Because if you do less than that, they will break down over time and you will lose the structural integrity of what you're carrying. But yeah, that's that's what I do. There are higher end options and maybe that's what Alex is here for. So he's got next. And Alex. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to look for it. I couldn't quite find it as fast as I, we, what we used to do is there's a company that will, uh, number one is I would, I standardize on 1510s. <laughs> so I would just get a 1510 and figure out how much you're going to fit into the 1510. Um, as opposed, because the 1510 is exactly 22 by 9 by 14, which will fit in, is it a, a regulation US um, uh, um, 
uh, carry on. And so you know that it, it can't get bigger than, than that. You do give up a little space. If you want a little bit more space, you can get a, um, something like a, an away bag or a, or a Tumi. They make ones that are just completely empty and light and they will do the same thing. But if you get a Pelican case, one of the advantages is there are companies that already do the Pelican case. And what you do is you lay out the things that you want to have in there and you take a picture of it and you send it to them and they laser cut it <laughs> for you. And a lot of times they have all the objects already kind of digitized. And so they, they, they put that together for you. And then now you're able to just kind of set it down. Another thing to look at is um, made by Pelican or bought by Pelican is uh, Trek Pack. So Trek Pack are these little inserts that you can put in there and you can put these little pins in it to kind of define what is being held in those different areas. And they have both a Trek Pack and they have kind of a foam hybrid that you might want to look at there. Um, but but I would definitely be thinking about, I have to admit, I think about how, especially for a self, a person just going by myself, I look at how do I fit everything I need into a 1510 and a backpack. Usually for me, it's a Rush 24 by 511 and a, and a, and a um, 1510. And what can I fit into those two things to run a show? Next question. From Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, how might you use a cheap seven-inch touchscreen? Is it worth the $60? Courtney? Uh, that touchscreen that he's uh, pointing to was is a strange aspect ratio. Um, uh, this is what it looks like. It's very wide and very short. Uh, so uh, while you can set it up as an external screen on Windows, uh, and since it's a touch screen, you know, you have to lay out the touch interface for the same aspect ratio, and that gets it to be a bit problematic. It can be done, and it's designed for a Raspberry Pi, so you can use it, but it's going to take a little bit of programming work or a little bit of gyration to use it as a touch screen. You could use it maybe with Companion as a Stream Deck alternative. Um, yeah, it might work there, but I'm not sure how flexible Companion is in the layout. It's probably designed for the 4x3 layout in this super wide aspect ratio, you may not be able to fit the buttons in and do the touch screen in that, uh, you know, to be able to access it. So it'd be good for an external display for information or something that you could put on a second screen, but without doing a lot of programming, I think using the touch interface is going to be problematic. And Alex. Oh, even at $60, you're an expensive friend. <laughs> That's all I have to say. I'm definitely getting this. I've, you know, we, we love long um, monitors and I've had a hard time finding ones that I want to use. The touchscreen doesn't matter as much to me, but the long monitor is great for um, a lot of times what we do is we put them under our teleprompters to, um, to send messages to the, um, to the speaker. So, you know, putting them underneath. So if we're doing an uh, Interatron, a lot of times we put multiple monitors. Now, what we've typically done because we don't haven't found a good long monitor that I like um, is we typically use the two. Um, the um, Black Magic makes the Duo, and we'll attach that Duo underneath the teleprompter so that I can send. I have two screens that I can send photos to, and the nice thing about that is that that just comes out of a switcher, so I can just be sending things out there. Um, so, so that that's a little easier. But I, I love the idea of having some little. I'm right now. I'm rebuilding all my my studio and having like little monitors that just have a single purpose. Um, I think are are cool. So anyway, I'm going to buy one. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about what how, how hard it is to actually make it work. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas asks, "What resources would you suggest for learning the specifics of audio related development on iOS or macOS in Swift?" Go ahead, Jason. 
you cannot beat WWDC's specifically coverage in audio. It's some of the most clear and like perfectly paced um, training there is. Next question. And I just want to say, we've had the folks from AudioKit on. AudioKit, this is what they do. Like they they provide libraries for you to build audio tools. So AudioKit, AudioKitPro.com is what you're looking for. And they've been on our show a couple of times, and, but they are building all the development libraries. And in fact, um, someone that Liberty uh, had on early on, um, you know, that's what they were using was AudioKit um, to, to make that happen. So. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia, and here on our panel. Music for House of Worship yesterday was going in and out during the service from an iPad going into a A10 Mini. Is this Wi-Fi or HDMI issue? Go ahead, Tony. What happened? So um, I was playing different, different selections during the service, and it would just stop. I was using Apple Music to play uh, music into the Zoom meeting, and it would just stop. And this is not the first time that it's happened. Um, I have changed the a, um, HDMI cable, but it it does continue to happen, but it's not often. And that's why I was wondering if possibly it might be a, a Wi-Fi issue. And if it's not a Wi-Fi issue, um, I'm hoping that the panel can recommend a quality HDMI cable that I can use if they suspect that that is the issue. Serge, thoughts? I thought the, the first thing is um, the HDMI issue. I don't think it's the issue because if you have an HDMI issue, you're going to have HDMI, not just the audio. You will have the same problem with the, the, the image not going in. <clears throat> the Apple Music stopping, I got the same issue. <laughs> One simple thing I, I try every time is switch software. If you are an Apple Music, try Spotify, try uh, YouTube Music, or try anything else. For some reason, there is sometimes uh, something going on that Apple Music it will not just continue playing uh, others' track. Uh, background app refresh might be a thing to check also. I think it's related. Uh, if you keep Apple Music in front and not send it to the back, that also might keep your uh, Apple Music running. And if you are not sure of your Wi-Fi, pre-download all the playlists that you need. That way you will not rely on Wi-Fi. Plus one on downloading the playlist. Peter? Well, that last part was what I was going to say. Make sure they're downloaded because Wi-Fi will bite you every time. Every time. Courtney? I'm not sure how Apple's um, music handles uh hdcp of content protection if it's going into a hdmi input it may require hdcp and if it's copyrighted stuff that's playing back on the streaming it may set the copyright flag and it may balk at the uh because the atem doesn't support hdcp that's just a guess but it could be wi-fi if you're receiving your music over the wi-fi into the ipad and then the ipad out is going into the atem so Next question. From Paul Valhus in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, Grand Finale is a multi-effect plug-in designed for finalizing complete mixes, stems, buses, and or individual audio tracks. Can be used for luffs metering, like the Brandon Buttram loudness meter on After Hours. Alexander. Well, I haven't used this plugin, but it does say it has luffs metering. So yes, it, it should work just fine for that. 
Uh, it's a bit overkill if you're just looking for metering in a, a post-production workflow or if you're uh, workflow or if you're mixing. I guess it would make sense. The only thing I don't see, and it doesn't say in the manual if it has true peak metering uh, or true true peak indication, which for me, that's something that I would definitely look for in an overall measurement of program loudness. And Alex? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if it would if it would uh, <laughs> if it would work. It doesn't look like it's, it's something you can separate out. What I will say is that I love the design, <laughs> like the, the the visual design of their their, their stuff. I I went to the website. I, I I've never seen this company before, and I just opened it up, and it just was like this breath of fresh air of just incredibly good. Uh, you know, non-skeuomorphic, uh, but beautiful design that tells you what you need to know. And there's something about the desaturated tones and everything else. You just, you just have to look at the site. This is, uh, what is it? Um, uh, Kev, Clev Grand. So K-L-E-V-Grand.com. Uh, just go look at it. I, I, maybe you'll disagree with me, but, but wow, just, they all look beautiful. I want to buy them just so that I can just look at them, open them up and just look at them. Uh, just really incredible design. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Sorry, it has nothing to do with your thing. I don't, I don't think it'll work for what we're trying, trying to do with it. But, but I think that the, the, you should look at the design anyway. It looks great. What, when tech meets graphic design. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Bill. Well, I was looking in my plugins and the Ks, and I have uh, the their Lux package. I used it for a little while trying to do this. I actually devoted myself eventually to a single program. It's uh, from a company called Klangfund out of Germany, and they have Luffs Meter too. And if you're just looking to absolutely set Luffs uh, limits, that will not be uh, exceeded. I had a bunch of deliveries to Europe, and they were really particular about that. And that's the tool that did it for me. If you want more than that, this other thing may do the same thing. I wasn't, it had too much in there for me to, I just needed a tool to do that one specific thing. And that's the way I went. Next question. Next up is David Brady from New York, New York, asking quad split screen on the LG 43UN700B and watching office hours on an NVIDIA Shield TV, Apple TV, Roku, and Mac Mini. To my eye, the Apple TV oversaturates, Mac is too dark, and Roku is just not enough. And NVIDIA Shield is just right. Any ideas why? Jason? Yes, because uh, this quad split incredible TV that I too have is, you know, doing double duty. And I think when it splits things off, it doesn't actually set the the proper display settings. It, it just kind of generalizes them when you put multiple things up. So what I would do is set it to quad and then calibrate that way. Uh, also check your firmware. I think they pushed an update that um, that fixed a little bit of this oddity uh, maybe three, four months ago, something like that. Courtney? Yeah, the problem is you're letting Goldilocks do your color calibration. That's a, so one will be just right <laughs> and the rest of them. <laughs> now, but uh, the problem with a quad split monitor and multiple inputs is that it's a single panel that has to serve all four inputs. And if all four inputs use a different color base, one's using YUV, one's using RGB, uh, you know, the input can can handle that and can switch to that and the scaler will switch to that and handle that, but it's still got to output all four of them to a single LCD panel. And so you can't really control the overall, you know, and that panel only has one set of, of uh, RGB proc amps in it. So, you know, where you get it look on look good on one, it won't look good on the others. So that's the problem. And Alex, 
I'd be curious. I, I agree that the problem is is that you have a bunch of different gammas all going into the same uh, the, the same monitor, and that's not going to work. Uh, it probably the monitor just happens to be set in a way that the shield looks good. Um, I think that I'd be really curious if you took something like this. This is the Spider. Um, this is the Spider X Elite or whatever that I have here. If you took this and you applied it, went full screen with the Mac, and then ran it. And then used your iPhone with the newest version of the iPhone and the Apple TV to run its color correction um, on on at, at full screen um, because both of those are not changing the monitor; they're changing the calibration of the, the. They're basically changing the LUT that comes out of the Apple TV and out of the computer to correct for what's actually happening on the monitor. So if you use the Spider on the Mac and you use the iPhone on the on the Apple TV, I'd be very curious to find out if, if you suddenly, it looked a lot better. It'd be really interesting to see. Fairish? Sorry, uh, unmuted myself. Um, one thing I ever, I, I tend to do on my Sony TV is to go into Apple, Apple TV settings video and switch from HDR to Dolby Vision and switch to HDR without Dolby Vision. That way, sometimes I get better results. It's, it's really hard for me to, with that TV, to always keep Dolby Vision. And sometimes it's it's good, sometimes it's not. So it's something I would try in your case. And Jason. Yeah, last quick follow-up. Alex's method is exactly what I did to tease out the the issues that I was having. So yes, uh, get a spider, and um, and you know that kind of bias adjustment is is the way to go. Next question from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Marion out of Germany has announced the Clara E, a PCIe based five twelve by five twelve Dante card. Mentions ASIO, so I'm not sure if it will work with a Mac. How will this be better than DVS? Jason, real quick. Uh, the last part is that it's it's hardware and not software, and it does not show that uh, macOS is one of the supporting operating systems, so I wouldn't count on it. And Alex? Yeah, I don't know if it's being supported by the Mac. Uh, and exactly what was uh, what Jason said, it, it, as a piece of hardware, it's going to give, it's A, giving you a lot more channels than DBS does. And B, it's going to give you the, the, the one piece of hardware that you need in the network to be able to make sure that everything's working. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, Jason, you mentioned that the app development is a craft. Beyond learning core programming concepts like data structures and algorithms, how can one elevate their app development skills to produce a quality product and not just a functional product? Bill? You're getting into the cross-functional uh, groups area here. And what I mean by that is building the actual programming behind an app is one thing. Putting it into a human interface that understands human interface guidelines. In other words, how to use the code easily with an interface and the aesthetic side of it to make it beautiful. I and mean, Alex was just mentioning he loved those products, the way they look, because someone took the time to design everything about them from the type used to the colors, to the shading, to everything else. And that kind of screams quality. It reminds me of when I, I, I do a lot of typesetting for video because I'm an editor, but every time I send it off to an art director, it comes back 50 times better than I could ever do. Why? Because that young man or young woman, generally they're young, tended to have so much more in their mind about good design that I will never be able to understand because I haven't spent my life doing it. So uh, bringing mm -hmm. in people who have skills that complement your own, uh, Douglas, maybe 
the best way to get a true quality expression of your code. Jason. Take your functional product, put it on an iPhone or, or an iOS device or whatever, put it in somebody's hands and watch what their thumbs are doing. Watch where they are making mistakes. Watch how they are deviating from the way that you thought you were going to be using it when you built that uh, that wireframe diagram. Best possible way to iterate. Get it in a lot of hands and pay attention. Alex? Uh, do a lot of it. It's a craft. Uh, how do you get good at a craft? You do it over and over and over again. And then you look at it and you refine it and you um, try to keep on figuring out what's missing and what's, what, what'll make it better. And Peter? There's a reason that the seminal books on programming are called by Donald Knuth are called The Art of Computer Programming, not The Science of Computer Programming. It's practice, 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 just like any art. Next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, my tally light question yesterday got a little muddied. I'm wondering if such a light can tap into the ATEM Mini Pro's encoder status, where when streaming and the on-surface on-air button is eliminated, its status can trigger an on-air light. Richard? Yeah, um, I, I didn't quite see the question yesterday, so I can't quite remember it. Um, so I'm not too sure if he's referring to a specific light, but um, there are probably a couple of ways. There are, I think, some open source projects out there that do this. Uh, there's a couple of companies who have made little tally lights, including middle things that uh, connects to the APCR. So there are solutions out there for wireless and Bluetooth kind of connected tally lights. Um, I think if, if I was approaching it, I would look at something like ATEM OSC um, that can or mix effect that can detect the status of the um, of the at the ATEM and then send that to something else that you would create or, or program. Um, so there there are different solutions. Isadora can do it as well as uh, anything with, uh, with with that can read the the OSC messages coming out of the ATEM. Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, if you don't want to do a lot of programming, Scarhoy makes a GPIO that talks to the ATEM and will give you those statuses. And it can also talk to their tally light. So you can use uh, a GPIO talking into their tally and it will talk to, to, uh, to your ATEM unit. And Courtney. Yeah, Blackmagic themselves make the GPI and tally interface for about $495. It interfaces with all their mixers, uh, vision mixers, and takes, you know, uh, uh, Ethernet in and, and gives you a GPI, a 25-pin GPI output, which you can connect to your tally lights to drive your tally lights. Uh, available already at Blackmagic. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, in this article about Elton John's farewell tour, there's a link to it, it mentions the cameras are switched from the MA Lighting Grand MA2 lighting console. Why could that be? And wouldn't it be easier to use a video switcher? Bill? At that level, at the Elton John level, nothing is done by mistake. Almost everything has some alternative uh, thing there. For example, when Elton's on stage, there's a big piano and on the side are 10 inch tall letters to say Yamaha. That doesn't mean that that's a Yamaha off the shelf piano. They, his piano text could have gone in and redone every single thing inside of that. At that level, it's as much about marketing as it is. So maybe the lighting director likes that console or maybe they've taken the console and made it work exactly like the lighting director wanted it because it's Elton John. Most of us don't get to do that. And Richard. Uh, I'll, I'll be as quick as I can, and I'll, but I will speculate a little bit. Um, on larger shows, everything is set to specific cues. Um, and 
specific lighting also would change different exposure based in the cameras. So there's chances are is that because you know systems like QPilot are designed to switch on specific beats or specific moments. There is a, still a video director there, but if a lighting director is changing lights, it can be quite handy to kind of connect those things in. And in, in Douglas's article, um, he does mention that all this is done on a second grandma um, that, that's designed to, I think, run the iMag as well. Next question. Paul Valhus in Austin, Texas asked, Ecamm is promising a surprise stream today with Ecamm's co-founders, Ken and Glenn. There's a link to it. What will this be? Nigel? I have no idea, but it's 1 p.m. Eastern. If you read the thing, it says, you can probably guess I am not psychic. I can't guess if I had a wish list, it would be ISO videos. Mm. And our final question for the first hour. Harshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and here on our panel. Alex, which one of these items in your background be the very camera that episode one of Mac Break Weekly was shot on? Perhaps that Sony 950, I think? Do tell, Alex. It is. The right, uh, right there. That's the Sony 950. Uh, that's, the, that's what I am. Um, it's actually 950. I think the serial number is number 10. <laughs> so it was a very early, early uh, build of the 950. Um, and that was what we used. That was used on episode uh, episode one of Mac Break, but episode two and three of Star Wars. So so um, so anyway, that's uh, so it's a pretty, pretty fun little camera that I thought I'd put back there. Um, I thought it, I thought it made sense. It's been sitting in a Pelican case locked for like five years. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to pull it out and put it on the shelf. It looks great. Looks great. All right. We are at the top of the hour. Thank you, everyone, for your questions and keep those questions coming as we transition to having the hard, difficult conversations. And what does that what does that mean? How can we navigate that? This is a time of year where reviews are happening for for many. If you are working whether that's on a team or working in in an organization where just um, end of year reviews helping with bonus. But for many of us that are also in the production world, um, there are times that you you do have to have that those hard conversations, whether it be working with having to tell the client that, you know, we we can't do that. We've got to, you know, giving them options for for other ways to navigate the shoot, navigate the event. And we just want to take this time to really dive into how to do that, different steps that you can take. In preparing um, for today, I found an article on HubSpot where they said each month, roughly 22,000 people search for conflict resolution. And essentially, when you are having a hard or challenging conversation, it could be that there's something that needs to be worked on. There's whether it's review, whether it's correction. A lot of times it is also there's there are hard conversations even around like praising or having the, when you're working with your client and then needing to make sure that, okay, we've got to ask for more budget. Budget is usually where a lot of those difficult conversations come in. And Nigel, you shared in um in our group and preparing for the Monday conversation, a book, a great resource around having difficult conversations. Yeah, I, so I, I really recommend this book, Having Difficult Conversations. I, I, uh, I suspect we'll get into, into how to have the difficult conversation, but I actually think one of the most important points from the book is the question it asks, and it actually takes about half, halfway through the book before I ask it, which is, 
in this difficult conversation, what is at stake at having this conversation? And you really have to ask yourself, what's at stake? Should you raise something or is it just let it go? I mean, what's the upside to both you and the person for doing it? If you're someone who gets stuck in the right, wrong, should, shouldn't, good, bad thing, you'll probably find that's a really difficult conversation to have because everybody comes to every situation with their own story and you've got your story and the other person's got their own story. So as, as we talk through the various different steps, my, my one thing that I always ask before I have that difficult conversation is, what's at stake? Is it worth having? How do you... Um... How do you prepare? Because I know when there are lots of times when we're working with interns, we do internship programs, usually in the summer. And at the end of the the internship, there is that review phase. And some of the ways that I prepare is, okay. I always like to start with something positive, um, setting just the stage for the conversation and making notes so that when the conversation happens to stay on on track with the conversation, um, um, how do you prepare for those kinds of conversations? Yeah, so I would separate out uh, having a sort of review conversation, which I always do with what have you done well, what could you do more of, which is a much better way of saying what you've done badly, uh, from having the difficult conversation, which is when you need to tell somebody they've done something, um, they're having a problem. You know, the hardest thing for people often is is people who are alcoholic or they're taking drugs, or if there's, you know, a situation, someone once reported to me a rumor that somebody else had uh, sexually harassed somebody in the team. And at the moment they did that, they lost control and I lost control of that conversation. So, so now I have to bring in HR, there are steps we have to do. So I would really separate out the, the annual review process from the difficult conversation. If you have to have the difficult conversation as part of the annual review process, you've really got to plan again, what's at stake, how am I going to do it? Because this is going to be a, a mediation approach. You have to think like a mediator when you're having these conversations. This is not about winning or losing, right or wrong, as I said before. It's about getting the other person to understand, if you want them to, what the issue is. Alex? Yeah, and I think that Nigel has a really good distinction there of, of the, that there is a, there are things that are difficult conversations, and then there are things that are legally meaningful. You know, like, and so, and so you have to distinguish those. And I think sometimes people don't distinguish those. They're going to have a conversation with someone and they don't realize that they're opening up this can of worms that includes HR and law and, you know, and, and lawyers and things like that. And you just have to be very, very careful of those, of those things and really think about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it in a way that's going to make that work. Now, most of the conversations that I have with folks is, are not that in that in that realm. I kind of I I hand that if, if it's if it's a question that that I view as a a legally issue you know legally tricky issue. Usually, I'm going to hand that to HR. I'm going to hand it to somebody. I'm going to say like, you need to handle this. I'm not going to get my get my uh, um, myself into that. Um, but when it comes to just having harder conversations, I think a couple things about just just moving people forward. One is building trust with folks. So, you know, a lot of people here, you don't see it all the time when you're on there, but you'll see that I send out lots of, lots of, and sometimes in Discord and sometimes in direct messages, we'll have pretty hard conversations with folks. But I think that they, I've built up trust with a lot of them that they know that I'm doing it out of trying to move, trying to build something bigger and better. I'm not doing it to pick at people. I'm trying to make it 
I'm trying to make them better at what they do. I'm trying to make myself better at what I do. I'm trying to do, you know, I'm trying to move things forward, make the show better. And it's really coming from that commitment. Um, another thing is, is that I, you know, um, not, I don't do it perfectly, but I, I think I, I spend a lot of time taking a, a accountability for a lot of things that happen around me. So I don't, you know, usually sit there and go, well, it's that person that, that, that I look at where, in most cases, I look at what did I do that had that happen? And I start oftentimes with an apology of, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you this, or I didn't, I didn't give you this information, or I should have done this. And you'll see me start like a lot of hard conversations with an apology for the things that I know that an acknowledgement of the things that I could have done better to have that, to have that, whatever it was that didn't work, um, have it, or I just have a very direct conversation about those things. But I think that that is important. And, you know, Early on when I was running Pixel Core, I was not good at this at all. And I just was just constantly frustrated with everybody around me. <laughs> you know, like and, just, and over time, the, the RFI, which we use here, was really important in the sense that RFI stands for Room for Improvement. And we didn't call it mistakes. We didn't call it things that were wrong. We called it, there's a room, you know, we did a, we probably did a pretty good job on most of, most clients didn't notice anything or very few things go wrong, even though we might notice a lot of them. But we'd, we put a place for everyone to write them down. And it was like, we really made it safe to say everything from, you know, we should have done this with the packing all the way down to like the, the sandwiches were cold. You know, like that was all the the stuff that we would, people would put into these things. And what we did is we made it safe to complain. <laughs> we made it safe to say, uh, this isn't working. This isn't, I didn't care about the stuff that worked. Like, to be honest with you, you when you're doing productions, I, I find that you don't have to worry about the things that work. They'll, they'll sort themselves out. What we really have to look at is, what we really have to encode is what didn't work and what how do we cl clean that up? You know the, the the stuff that works becomes comes natural in, in my opinion, and so so the the what happens though is that when it became safe to um, talk about what wasn't working, what was interesting about that was that when we do a project that doesn't work, the team, the whole team instead of trying to defend themselves, would immediately jump in and go, I could have done this and I should have done this and I could have done this. And the whole team is taking accountability and we're almost falling over each other to apologize for the things that we could have done better. And I found that that was a, you know, that was a shift that happened because um, as someone who was managing the project, I wasn't throwing people under the bus. <laughs> you know, like I was, every time there was, there was something there, I'd run up in front of the bus and take it, take the hit, take the hit, you know, and and, um, and, uh, and so I think that that, that helps a lot is when you, you know, make it safe for people to talk about and be vulnerable as a manager of saying like, I can do these things better as well, but then also being careful of what that means legally. <laughs> so, so you always have to kind of keep, keep those things, those, those in mind as well. So I heard creating a safe space where people mm -hmm. can trust and and just um, like putting yourself putting yourself under the bus is that what you said first? Yeah, and, and and being willing to take the you know take you know so for instance for us on Sundays you can ask just about anything about office hours and we'll and we'll you know we'll talk about it you know and and it's one of those things that I find that that is really important like it's really important to have a place where people can bring up bring to the the surface things that they want to they want to talk about whether it's stuff that they want to envision in the future or things that they think need to be addressed and i think that those i think a lot of times people don't want to deal with those and they don't and they tend to not provide nice clean chains of 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 a process to to put that through go ahead bill 
I'm a little funny in that I don't think any conversation I have time to prepare for is ever going to be tremendously difficult for me. I know some of them have a bad outcome and some of them have to tell somebody bad news and stuff like that. But if I have time to think it through ahead of time and know why I'm making the decision, figure out how the best way to couch the language, but to get the job done, I'm okay with it. The ones I found the most difficult are something happens in the field on set and you have to react to it and do it the best way you can. I had a circumstance early in my career where um, we had three talent in front of the camera and one of the guys literally, I don't know whether he didn't bring his glasses or whatever, he couldn't read the teleprompter, just couldn't do it. His eyesight was too poor. And so it was a circumstance where after I realized that was happening, uh, someone came to me and said, do you want me to talk to him about it and we'll find somebody else? And I said, no, it's my job. I mean, it's my set. So I had to go over and in the instant, try to figure out a way to not crush him, but let him know that he was gone as of now and somebody else had to come in. Other directors, particularly if someone is, is getting tossed off set because of their arrogance or their inability to listen, I can see being more harsh about it. In his case, he just, I don't know why he didn't understand the teleprompter meant he had to be able to read it, but it didn't work that way. So um, those moments where I wasn't prepared and something went wrong, the time somebody handed me a bullhorn in front of a, a baseball crowd and I had to direct them from that, you get this cold shiver up the back and then you either can do it or you can't do it. If you can do it, you can survive in this business. If you can't do it, you don't. And it's, sometimes it's as simple as that. It's the unprepared crises that always say to me, that makes you succeed or fail. Maybe later on, we can dive into more of that. Like, how do you handle being a, when it's like instantaneous? Go ahead, Peter. Well, there's a whole class of conversations that I will start off by saying, don't confuse sell with install. That's a, that's a, that's, that's a, but there were a number of times back in my middle years with IBM where I was sent out from the laboratory to do final engineering verification for a large client. There were a couple of them and it turns out the salesman had done a really good job and had sold the hardware and the hardware would not do what the client wanted. And it did spent 40 to $50 million not a happy conversation those make for some difficult conversation and i as the engineer on site the fundamental answer was pull the marketing guy aside explain to him you're going to tell the truth and watch him sweat because there's no way the laboratory was going to let us install something that wouldn't work go ahead jason um, I want to start more about just kind of a team. A team almost always has a shared stated goal. And if you start from saying, you know, we are both here for this and, you know, everything that I'm saying is in, you know, in the betterance of, of you know, our stated shared goals, um, it, it's I've found to be a, a better way to deal with this kind of thing. But um, I, on you know on the receiving side, the more open you are to criticism, the better you will be next time. There is no such thing as perfection. Whether you are the one you know, whether you're in charge or you're the one who's having to say something to an underling that you you know is difficult. There's just no way around it. But yeah, listen to what you're being told because it is in the betterance. Uh, it is for the betterance of, of everybody. 
There was a, a video that I watched and I'll post it in the chat with Mel Robbins talking through the very thing of like having difficult conversations. And to your point, Jason, she talks about the essentially it's active listening, right? So being present to to listen, to acknowledge um, what's being said and, and taking yourself out of it. It's trying to pull the emotion out of it as well. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, this is a tough conversation because it's not in my DNA to be the tough guy uh, that has to be the one to give the difficult conversation. But like Bill says, it's my responsibility if it's in my set that something's going wrong. I I try to apply some Japanese methodology uh, to allow them to save face. And that usually means taking them aside kindly and straightening them out. And usually that works if you get them in a quiet area and tell the person, hey, you're not, you're not supposed to do that or don't do that or you're showing your, uh, your awkwardness or your inability to do your job. Um, the only time that I will lash out and pull the bullhorn out and embarrass them is if somebody disrespects the chain of command and does something that's affecting the outcome of the, uh, of the production, then I'm going to smack them down hard. And before we get to, um, get to the questions, can we take a moment to even outline or describe what a difficult conversation is because Nigel thank you for you know putting the differentiator between okay like peer review and having a difficult conversation but if we could bring maybe some definition around what that could look like and because while we are talking a lot uh, from the production perspective there are difficult conversations that come from relationally as well if anyone wants to um, jump in on that Jason. To Mitch's point, um, a difficult conversation is something that can be held in in private, I think. This is not somebody who is, you know, on the day of the event, um, you know, doing something that they categorically cannot do. It's only happened to me once where somebody on my team that is that I am in charge of um, just completely did something wrong. And I, I just said, leave. Um, you know, that's that's not what this is. This is about, you know, I, at least to me, the postmortems, the, you know, how do you structure things when you have a moment to structure them? And I, I loved what Bill said. Conversations that I have time to prepare for uh, are rarely difficult conversations. I, I love that approach and I, I love that that mindset because that really is the, the right way to think about these things. Mitchell? Um, I would frame it as disruptive uh, to the production and bad uh, for the company that's uh, working as a crew to try to do a job. And it almost forces your hand because if you have a client there, they're gonna expect you to do what you have to do. Um, and if I have to eject somebody from a set, I will do it quietly and privately. Um, I'll pay them, I'll tell them to leave, and that's it, it's, it's done. So it has to be something pretty serious because I'm a pretty easygoing guy. But if it's affecting how the outcome of the production is going to meet the timetable and they do it on multiple occasions, they got to go. And Nigel? So I think I have a different view here. I think a difficult conversation is not something like, you've done something, I want you off the set. I don't think that should be a difficult conversation. It should be clear. It should be simple, it should be concise, and it should be executed. I think a difficult conversation is when you want to tell somebody something that doesn't have them leaving, doesn't have them exiting, but they need to understand. So I'll give you some examples. Um, used to be an issue with men or women wearing too much perfume or cologne. 
and people find that offensive. It's people using uh, bad humor. It's somebody failing in their job. And typically, you're trying to have that conversation. You are going to tell them something that is uncomfortable to them, that you want them to understand and appreciate, to adjust their behavior, because you don't necessarily want to lose them. I don't find it hard to fire someone who's broken the rules. I find it much harder to tell somebody something they're personally going to have to deal with so they get themselves into a better place. And that's really, to me, what a difficult conversation feels like. Alex? And to go back to something that Jason talked about a little bit, is that uh, also think about the timing of when you're going to have that conversation. In a production, there are many things that I will decide not to have a conversation about until afterwards because it will affect the person's, um, you know, the, the same stuff that Nigel was talking about talking to them about some of those things during the if, if it's affecting the show and there's and there is a way to fix it it's one thing but if i look at something and identify what they're doing is i can't fix it now like pulling you know and and we we uh you'll hear us on the back end just sometimes just say for a thing or a person just leave the knife in <laughs> like you know just just you know like is you know so there's a you know and and because there's a, there's a term like if you get stuck with a knife, sometimes pulling it out is worse than leaving it where where, right. where it was sitting. And so you'll see us just say, you'll, you'll literally see like things that go wrong. And it can be a thing, it can be a person, it can be whatever. And you'll hear someone on our team just say, just leave the knife in. Like there's nothing I can do about that now. It's only going to make it worse if I pull it out. And I'm just going to, we're just going to work around it. And sometimes you should pull it out and fi figure it out if it's really going to, you know, um, if you can. But I have done a lot of things in my past, over 2,000 events where I've said things to someone and they just went south. You know, like they just, you know, and then that was, you know, and I tried to say it as nice as I could, but again, in the in the heat of the moment, at a production, so on and so forth, you have to be very careful of, of how you set those things up because you can lose an operator and then then what do you do? <laughs> so so that's, the, that's the thing you have to think about as well. So tune, leave the knife in, adding that to my um, vocab. <laughs> Courtney? Uh, yeah, and I see difficult conversations can happen uh, between subordinates. In other words, if you're a, you're a, uh, a head of a department, uh, head of the sound department, head of the camera department, et cetera, and you have a certain way that you like things done, and the people that are working under you may have a different opinion on how to do the same thing, because a lot of people have different opinions on how to achieve the same goal. Uh, but you have to to establish a chain of command. And uh, uh, get breaking into an argument in the middle of a set between uh, a department head and a subordinate is not good. It makes you both look bad. And so you have to make sure that you time and, and have that conversation uh, privately over a private line comms, if if possible, or off the, if you have a chance to go off the set, say, you know, look, this is a way I know you have. a You may think you have a better way of doing it, but I want to be consistent. You know, and I want to do it this way. I'm taking the head credit. I'm taking the credit for the sound of the camera the video so you know i'm going to be blamed for it if you do it your way and it doesn't work out so just do it my way <laughs> and it sounds fairly authoritarian but uh it it makes for a more cohesive and, and a, a a smoother running set if you don't break into arguments between uh, subordinates on the set it's embarrassing it holds up production and it makes you look bad tony yeah, mine is, my uh, concern is a little bit different. Um, I'm working with a group of older, older citizens, senior citizens and um, in the house of worship uh, environment. And 
we've made tremendous amount of progress thanks to um, office hours and the support of the community. But we are nowhere near where I think we should be in terms of the potential for even the fact that that we are, for the most part, senior citizens. Um, I am, I'm looking for some direction in terms of how to speak to them about wanting to make the next steps in terms of improving. And because this is um, a house of worship environment and everyone is there because they uh, are volunteering and this is right now primarily just a, uh, a Zoom meeting situation, but there is a lot of room for improvement. So if there are, if there are, um, things that you, the group can share with me that I might need to be able to share with them, please share that. Bill, did you want to, cause I know that we have our, our lineup for answering the general questions. Do you want to touch on that for Tony? Well, I'm not, no, I had a different thing that I wanted to talk about. I was going to raise an even bigger problem that we haven't okay. mentioned yet. So if somebody else I'll, wants to yeah, do it, I can, Tony's, I can yeah. jump in. I'm um, just it. thinking of many times when um, over the years of office hours, um, Alex has just mentioned, you know, how giving feedback or when you're speaking with a client that whenever there's resistance to change is always pulling out examples or showing them. I can show you better than I can tell you. And understandably so the consideration that the community that you're dealing with is that they are possibly set in their ways and have a certain way of doing things. If there's a way that you can show examples, um, possibly whether that have some labs or even some workshops or finding some buy-in with some people, um, kind of looking at it as, okay, well, I will work with these two people because they show show promise in understanding where you want to go by getting some buy-in from folks that will then help you so that you'll have the support from the ground up. So it's not just one directional. It's not just you saying, you know, here's where I want to take us. But now you have the support system of people who, um, who want to, to, support that. And maybe it might, maybe you can also post this question and maybe we can come back to it so we can have people specifically, um, specifically answer that. Let's go, Bill, there was something that you wanted to bring up. Yeah. I just wanted to bring up the worst of all possible circumstances is when you have to have a difficult conversation with somebody higher than you in the org chart. I've had, I've heard tell of a couple of circumstances where somebody shows up on set, they're either involved with the money or they're a spouse of somebody who's very important and they decide to Bigfoot things. And then you can find yourself in that position where your authority to make the decisions you're trying to make is challenged by somebody outside who hasn't done any of the preparation. And that can be an absolute nightmare. Every bit of political skill you have, every bit of up to deciding in an instant, is this worth it that I bow out and say, if you're going to try to make this decision around me, you need a different director or whoever, whatever job you're doing. And I have to exit because I can't tolerate existing in this. Those are the real difficult conversations. Well said, Bill. Peter? Well, to follow on to Bill's comment, I've, I've certainly found myself in that position a couple of times. And and usually it boiled down to is I'm the engineer. I was the chief engineer on some large projects, but 
there was always somebody ahead of me who had the money. So if the answer was, you know, you know, this was a money conversation or a sales conversation, well, fine, I, I, I'll, I'll bow to that one. But if you're asking me if it will work or not, I will tell them the truth, right? But the other point I would make to to Tony is it's kind of a follow on. I think it was I forget who was talking about using peer pressure. I mean, I do a lot of work with kids. And I have my fixed ways of thinking I want to do something. If I can convince one or two of the kids that this might work, they'll work with the rest of their peers and get it done. Right. That I mean, there is sometimes you have to. I hate to say, you know, your talent because I don't but know the people who are doing the work, what they can do. Sometimes they come up with better ideas, by the way. So you have to be able to recognize that. You have to be big enough to recognize that as well. And I just wanted to pull in a couple comments uh, as we wrap up this part of the conversation. John Snyder says, one effective strategy for difficult conversations generally is externalizing the conflict. Identify the problem and alongside the other person to work together and solve the problem. The strategy stems from triangulation and family systems theory. Um, Roscoe Jones also shares three steps to conflict resolution. Listen, analyze, act on it. And there are so many other great comments in this. So please head over to the chat and share your comments. And it's also a great time to add your questions for our panelists to continue the conversation. And we'll go on to Mitchell and wrap with Alexander. Thank you, Liberty. Um, I'd like to turn the tables on this a little bit and say, what's it like when you have a difficult conversation that somebody is leveling at you? And um, I'll use a, a good uh, case in point is I thought that I'd be kicked off uh, office hours three months to being on here. I just was convinced that I was just too much of a uh, round peg going into a square hole. And um, I have a bit of an ego thing, too, going. Because, I, hey, my, my thinking always was I've got 45 years uh, doing uh, talent and being on camera and off camera um, that I should certainly know what I'm doing. But yet I got uh, direction and I got smacked down a few times. And the, I think it's important to understand how you should deal with that kind of criticism um, as sometimes I think I try to turn the tables to the extent that I want to know why that's happening, first of all, and whether or not they're right or wrong. And it may be just something that they have an opinion about. So um, I will say that uh, it's been a great learning experience being here on office hours because I've had some of my uh, square edges rounded off, uh, and rightfully so. But it's also important that once you get beyond that, it's going to make you a better uh person to deliver the bad news to somebody in your group too. So it's nice to find out that uh, an old guy can still learn a few new tricks. Well, and, and, and I, uh, I just want to add one thing to that only because I'm oftentimes the one throwing bricks and, and, um, uh, and the, the thing is, is that what has me, you know, continue to, you know, what, you know, it, it, what made it work with Mitch is, is that I, would give Mitch some th things that I'd prefer in a different way, you know, and, and then he would error correct, you know, against that, whether, you know, sometimes or argue, you know, like, well, I think that this is, it should be this, but we had a discussion about it. And what, it, what, what didn't happen when people, when I give someone like, Hey, I need you to work on this and they immediately push back or get emotional or get upset. I don't, I'm not, I understand that they might be that way, but then I just go, I can't talk to them. And when I said, when I think I can't talk to them, as someone who's in a team, then eventually they're just not going to take the same role 
on around me. I need to know my teams are filled with people who um, can take input and sometimes push back, but but eventually, you know, we, we come to an agreement on it, but it's not, it becomes, so you're absolutely right. But being able to take the, the, the input uh, from a difficult conversation effectively makes a huge difference. I know for me, when I'm giving people input, if I don't feel like they can, they can handle that input, then I won't give it to them. But then I also don't put much weight on them either <laughs> because I'm like, I can't, I can't fix something if it goes wrong. It would be, it would be easy to quit. Uh, but it's a lot harder to accept that uh, that input and make those changes and and see how it works instead of uh, having an attitude towards it because you're useless if you just leave. And Alexander, yeah, I mean it's it's one thing to to give um, to give f uh, critical feedback to people, but I think also to receive uh, criticism uh, well and to take it well takes time. And uh, it's that's something that just comes with experience. I know one thing that makes me really uncomfortable is talking to someone who is in a higher position than me about something that bothers me. And I used to make this mistake when I was a lot younger. I would kind of bottle these things up and and it would it would make me it wouldn't serve me very well. It would make me not perform well in my job because I would be thinking about these things. But as someone now who's in a management position, I really appreciate it when people come to me because oftentimes things don't come from uh, a point of a, like a, a malicious point of view. It's uh, they don't realize that they're actually doing something. So you, I really believe you should tell somebody if there's something that's that you don't like or that um, that that is making you uncomfortable. I had a manager actually that uh, was in a really kind of nasty, sarcastic way would crack jokes about about the way I would do things in a way that it made me seem like I didn't know what I was doing, even though I did. And when I talked to him about it, he didn't realize he was doing it. He really appreciated the feedback. And then he never did that again. That's a great example to to close that on. And there's actually there was a poll that went out and it looks like the the question was, have you ever had to give a difficult conversation to another? Ninety five percent of respondents said yes to that. So this is we're we're very timely with this conversation. All right, Mitch, let's go into the first question. All right. The first question is coming into us from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, I know that arbitration is often used to resolve business disputes outside of the court system, but is there such a thing as mediation within the professional world? Nigel. Yeah, so let's just spend a second on arbitration because, well, it feels like it's outside the court system. Invariably, it's not. And if you want arbitration to be legally binding, you're going to have to get somebody involved who everybody's going to have to agree is uh, with legally binding. You're going to have to accept discovery and all sorts of things. So when it feels like it's outside the court system, it's really a court system adjacent. Mediation is a very different thing. And I think that the, the key message in mediation is the idea that there's a middle so that you are going to have to give some and the other side is going to give some. Um, if you don't want to give any, you're not looking for mediation. You're not looking to find anything in the middle. You're looking to tell somebody what to do. So um, I think when you're having a difficult conversation, I think you should think like a mediator, which means 
you listen, you try and understand their arguments, you try and present facts either side. But at the end of the day, you may not want the middle ground. It's not you're 50% right and I'm 50% right, let's meet in the middle. It may be an end execution. So there's definitely a role in mediation. Your HR team are probably pretty good at that or you can find someone is. But when you're having a difficult conversation, you may not want the middle. And Courtney? Yeah, it is a bit of a minefield. Um, uh, arbitration clauses are in a lot of contracts that you have to agree to arbitration before you're hired uh, to solve any disputes. Uh, in labor contracts, it can be problematic. Uh, there are organizations like the National Labor Relations Board you can take a labor dispute to uh, who will arbitrate and make decisions that are binding um, outside of a court, uh, outside of just a civil suit. Um, and, but uh, you want to avoid that at all possible because careers can be ended over a dispute that you have to bring in an outside arbiter like that. Um, in production on the set, there are, you know, there's HR, if it involves any type of harassment, uh, uh, treatment or any, any type of bad treatment you see or, or treated poorly on the set, uh, you take it up with HR and the. A uh, person who is kind of the marriage counselor in a production set would be the first assistant director. If you have a beef or you have a problem with someone or something or with the schedule or anything like that, you take it to the first assistant director and he's really the arb the first arbiter you go to uh, with a problem, uh, especially if it's with another crew member or with the talent or with you know the director. Anything like that, you want to go privately through the first assistant director, and that person usually is in charge of dealing with disputes and handling them and making the decision on whether to elevate it to HR or take it to the director or take it to the individual person that is creating the problem and work out the dispute uh, quietly and without uh, too much drama on the set. So that that's how uh, production disputes a lot of times are handled. And Bill? In dispute circumstances, I also found it really useful, and I, did, I figured this out kind of early in my career, is if I win, what am I losing? And it can be as simple as somebody I'm, I'm directing on set and somebody comes to me with a, with a good idea and I say, that's a great idea. No, we can't do it. And then, you know, they get confused and go away. But right there, and I may be thinking about schedule or something else. The point I'm making is that afterwards, I would try to revisit that in my mind and say, what did they suggest that I had to say no to? And was there something that I couldn't execute on right now? But often that no to a good suggestion reveals something that I can benefit from the next time. So in any kind of a conflict dispute thing, I'm always trying to ask myself, if I win, what did I lose by winning? Was there information or wisdom or something that I could have gained from this that I lost because they went in my direction? And boy, you bring those things in and you just get stronger and stronger and stronger in your career. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and, and what I will say is just taking on, to underline, taking on, going through the official paths of, of arbitration or mediation uh, within a company has a lot of impact on your upward mobility within that company. <laughs> you just need to know that like you're take when you do that, you're immediately clipping yourself forever. Like, you know, like just be clear that like it, it is the best thing for you to do. If it's something you can't manage, you're in the, and, and it's a, it's, it's a real problem. It is something to, to take into account. 
But anyway, I think I've seen people, I don't do it because I don't, I, I, if I'm not happy with something, I move, <laughs> I move to something else. Like, you know, like if I'm really not happy with something, I'm going to find another job, you know, or I'm going to, or I'm going to deal it. But, but you just need to know that having face-to-face conversations and learning how to do that and learning how to work with your work, work it out without going to the, to the teacher, so to speak, um, is figuring out how to do that. The, the going to HR, going to, some people seem to have like a flick, like they're just going to go to HR when something isn't working. And that is a huge red flag for companies. Like, you know, just massive, like, you know, legal problem, everything else. And so you just need to know that, you know, there's a lot of things you can't, you can't, you know, thinking about how you're going to sort out this problem with that person individually and personally first is the thing that you want to figure out and you want to really try to make that work. Because once you pull the plug on, I'm going to go to, you know, go to the teacher, no one's going to look at you the same again. Like, like you, just, you just need to know that that is the, like, this is the, that's the hard reality of how this is going to work, you know? And if you're a pretty, like, you know, and, and I live in a world where we're all freelancers. And so that just means that, you know, like I, I, you know, when you pull those triggers, you just know you're not going to work with that. That person's not going to call you again, (laughs) you know, like, you know, so, so the, um, so you just want to be very, like, I think a lot of times people just think that they should use those kinds of tools. But, um, you know, I come from a family of lawyers and I can tell you that, you know, I will use legal means to do something as a absolute last resort. Like it is, it is the very last thing that I will do or even threaten or even talk about, you know, because as soon as you do that, it changes, everybody changes really quickly. And so in these hard conversations, thinking about a way to do it softly is super important. Next question. Aaron Jen Corelli, <coughs> excuse me, from Flagstaff, Arizona, <clears throat> recently had a freelancer selling his business to my clients during a job. How would you address this? Let's go with Jason first. Ooh, oh boy. <laughs> I right. would pick my jaw like uh, pick my jaw up off the floor. Uh, mercifully, this has never happened to me because uh, well, I generally tell people in advance this is a big no-no, but it's also it's it's one of the ultimate no-nos when everyone is a freelancer. I'll tell you how I will not address this in front of the client. Absolutely never, ever, ever don't interrupt. Um, you know, find find a time and then I would say ask a calibrated question. How am I supposed to hire you and every other freelancer on here if you are not part of this team? And, um, you know, simply selling your wares like this is a flea market. And that will, you know, the answer to that question, because you use the word how, forces um, the answer out of the person. And um, this is one of these rare cases where I would say do that again and we're done. I have so many questions for this question. Um, if this is someone who has worked with your your team for the for the first time, like Jason said, we have an onboarding checklist that everyone uh, new or even existing, just as a reminder in our pre-production meetings, like having that conversation of you are working on our team and navigating and pointing any qu- certain questions to the account manager or the producer uh, on set. I question this person's um, understanding of the way this industry works, that it is relationship driven. So they are now, you know, cutting off that relationship with you. Um, I don't off of like immediate memory, I don't remember this happening in the past, but anyone who has shown them, shown themselves their butt in front of the client is just someone that we, we wouldn't work with. um, We wouldn't work with again. Uh, Mitchell. 
That should be a moral dilemma. And if the person chooses to ignore their uh, their morals, then that person has no morals and you shouldn't be hiring them. I had it happen one time. The client came to me and told me about it. I didn't know what was going on. And um, that person was off my list. Like Alex says, once they show one of those big red flags, they're off the uh, the freelance list. Right. There's a chain of command. I like how you said that, Mitchell. Like, yeah, there's a chain of command and they've usurped that. Courtney? Uh, I base it on who I'm billing. If I'm billing a subcontractor, you know, if I'm a subcontractor building a contractor and that contractor has the account with the client, I never push my services uh, to the client at all. Never have any communications with the client directly about my services, how much they cost, you know, what would it cost for an extra day? I don't answer that question. I say, talk to the contractor. You know, I'm a subcontractor and I'm billing him, not billing you. So those questions should always go through the person that you're billing uh, rather than directly to the client. And that's how I keep it straight. Um, and people, I, you know, if, if people do are, are pushing themselves as, you know, you know, I can do this job better than the person you're paying that, that I'm subcontracted to, uh, they're on my list and never going to work again. And it does become a problem for me as a subcontractor because some producers are so paranoid that you're going to, uh, you know, because they're marking up your services. You're billing the contractor and the contractor is marking up those services. And you don't know how much he's marking them up. So you don't want to mention your price to the clients so that the client could hire you directly. Um, that's dangerous and that will alienate you to that subcontractor and, and put you out or that contractor and put you out of his Rolodex. So you, you got to be careful what bridges you burn and, and how to promote yourself. I usually try not to promote myself on set, only work through word of mouth. If you do a good job, someone will recommend you to somebody else. So true, Bill. If you're 17 and it's your first time on on the set, we'll probably have a chat. Anybody else in any other circumstances? In, my wife used to work in local television, and she one day was in the back room for a meeting, and there was a chalkboard, and on it were the letters DTU and the list of names. And some of them uh, were people who have been on the show a lot. And she said, what's that? And she said, that stands for dead to us. They had done something. <laughs> and from that point, never again. <laughs> And Alex. Yeah, we call that DTM. <laughs> or And we also had do not call. Like there's a list of do not call, like on the list of like people who did something, we just don't don't call. There's, there is, uh, there's low, low list. LL is just low list, which means that we might call them, <laughs> you know, but we probably won't. And then there's, you know, do not call and, and DTM. Um, the, uh, uh, I had it happen once. I, I have, I've been on both ends of those as we were talked about. And these, this is, I think, lives in a difficult conversation world which is a client came to me, pretty big client, and wanted to work around the per So some little company brought us into a big job. Uh, we obviously, they brought us in because they didn't know how to do the job and we obviously knew how to do the job. We've done a lot of those and we just tightened it all up and made it go out, you know, and it, it all worked and the client, you know, we keep everything through, but the client obviously saw what happened. You know, like, you know, that the, they've been working with this group for a long time. They suddenly bring this company in and they just tighten it all up and make it go out. So they come to us for the next job and that's a difficult conversation. And I absolutely said, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't, you know, like I can't, like I can't go around them. And I, there was no, like, and I was as nice as I could about it, about that, that process. And it's, you know, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of work. Like, it's not like they were asking me to do a, a logo design for them. 
And I just was like, that is like a line that I can't ever, that I can't cross. I can't know, have anybody know that I ever crossed it. I can't, I just can't go down that path. That is a, in our world, that is a place that you just don't want to be, you know, and you don't want to take any chances, you know, at, at that process. And I've had people do it. I had one person do it on a set and it was a multi-day event and they weren't there the next day. And the client asked what happened to, you know, what happened to, you know, John, John, you know, and it wasn't John, but it was what happened to that person. And I said, oh, there were some is issues like I can't get into. We had to move on to another, another operator. What that did <laughs> was both get that person out of the line. And then I also burned them <laughs> with the client. Like I just, you know, like I, I just, I just threw them over the, over the cliff because the, now the client doesn't know what that was. All they know is that, 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 that where there was a problem and, um, and that was it. And so that, you know, and, and that's what you risk when you start going down that path. Next question. Oh boy, I was thinking about that one. Uh, Douglas Carmichael uh, asking, how do you draw the line between difficult and volatile people? And when do you involve external authorities or resources when situations are getting out of hand? Go ahead, Nigel. I think Alex answered it well earlier. If you don't know, then go ask for help. Uh, have HR, have someone else do it. I remember I was working somewhere where we there was talk about layoffs. And one of my team members talked to me a lot about the handguns he owned. And I thought to myself, hmm, well, that's interesting. And, you know, when that conversation had to happen, I didn't have it. And we were prepared for it. So if you think they're volatile, unless you are a professional, don't do it. Go find someone that can. Difficult is someone who's going to be unhappy with you, nearly said a bad word, and maybe shout a bit and, and then you'll can, you think you can get them around. If you think in any way there's any risk to you or them, and by the way, there can be risk to them as well, then go find a professional. Bill? And this is why we rely so much on word of mouth and, and getting additional crew people from the people we already trust. Bringing somebody, the accident of bringing somebody into your crew who is truly toxic is so difficult to work with that I will do almost anything other than just go out into a general hiring pool. I will ask every contact I have, do you know anybody or do you know anybody who has a son or daughter or somebody who might be buildable to work in this role rather than just going out into the general pool? It can be really toxic to bring somebody onto a crew who's not, not right. Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, Chris asks, value versus cost is always the uphill battle with nonprofits. What's your effective strategies for opening these conversations? Jason? Chart it very carefully. Um, if you decide you want to go into this, you know, have, have columns like, you know, we provide, we do not provide. Um, and, you know, just, just understand that um, there, everybody is their hero of their own narrative. And in this case, they're trying to get as much for their buck as they possibly can. And, um, and you're trying not to go broke. Even if you believe in the cause, that doesn't mean that you should be working for free. Showing impact, um, impact and empathy, I would say to Jason's point of like standing your ground with regards to the cost and the value that you bring, but then also understanding where they're coming from. And anytime that you can come at it from like the, that service perspective, like here's where we're going to be able to take you from point A to point B, because that's what nonprofits are all about. They're about showing the impact of their organization and what they do. And, and any way that you can show that can help. Like we had a project last month that 
in September, they asked us to, to jump on board. But then when we told them the cost, they had no budget. And we had to like, just, okay, we, we couldn't do it. But then in October, they found budget. So people find money when they need to find money to get things done. Mitchell? Yeah, it's uh, it, it, that is definitely a problem. Um, I found with uh, nonprofits that they scrutinize your uh, RFPs and uh, sometimes are difficult, but not for the right re- or wrong reasons. They might be difficult because they're much more concerned about the outcome. But um, in, in our organization, we pick one nonprofit a year and we give them our full support, uh, you know, no cost to them because we feel that we're giving back from all the stuff that we have. And um, that does translate uh, into value to our organization because inevitably they're going to talk to somebody else and uh, we're going to get some good coverage there. So I'm not sure if I'm asking answering the question 100 percent, but uh, that's generally how it works for me. Alex? Yeah, the um, the hardest part with with nonprofits and in general, is they don't respect time because they they have lots of volunteers. So they, so the um, so I think that the 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 thing that you have to um, really think about is explaining the hard costs of what those things are. And a lot of times, it's not giving them itemized things. It's just really like this is what we have to do, and try to stay away from this whole like I got to itemize every little thing because that that's a you know it, it just never looks looks that way. I mean, it's I, a lot of times people ask me like why does this cost as much? And I said, well, when you go and have spaghetti, do you ask for like how much were the tomatoes and how much was the electricity and how much was the the flour that you made that pasta? No, you just need to know how much it is. <laughs> like, like this is how much the, the, this is and now you decide whether it's a value or not. Um, I will say that I tend to be pretty quick. I, I probably, probably why I don't work for a lot of nonprofits is I tend to be pretty quick about like, I, you know, if, if someone's, I, here's the, here's the bid. And if you want it to be less, just we'll figure out what you want it to fit into. And I can tell you what we can do inside of that budget. But if you're going to sit there and pick at my budget that I gave you and just wanted to want the same thing for less, the answer is probably going to be that you need to find somebody else to do it. <laughs> like, you know, like that's, that, that, that tends to be same thing for less is not something, is not a conversation I have. And generally it means that I'm not going to work with that client, you know, um, having, and that comes from, a, you know, I actually have that conversation more in Hollywood than I have in with nonprofits, which is you'll have some producer that just wants to break you down 30% or 25%. And usually at that point, I, I, uh, we figure out what we're going to take out. But if they, if they don't want to do that, they just want the same thing. Then I'm like, well, that's not, I'm not the right person for you. Courtney. Hey, you got to remember that nonprofits are nonprofit because they have expenses. And if you're part of the expenses, then you shouldn't be discounting yourself. Uh, and, and I treat this all the time. People will come to me, you know, well, can you do this job for us? Cause we're a charity and we're nonprofit. And even if it's something that I really believe in, I won't discount my rate. I, I you know, I'll say, well, if it's something I really believe in, I'll say, okay, well, I'll bill you my full rate. You pay me. And if it's something I really believe in, I'll make a donation. Uh, the donation is tax deductible. Reducing your rate and doing the job is not tax deductible. That's just, you're working at a lower rate. And uh, it's very difficult to mark that off of your taxes if you want to take it as a tax deduction. So uh, if you're doing tax accounting and doing it uh, because you believe in something, that's one thing. Handle it that way. Uh, pledge, pledge a donation after you do the job, get paid so that it shows up as income. And then the check out shows up as a charitable donation. So you can deduct it. That's the way I handle it. And Mitchell. It always comes down to the value of the services you're providing, 
not just the cost, the hard cost of the camera operator and the uh, other people involved, but there's a value associated with your time, uh, writing scripts, uh, all the things that detail-wise probably get you into trouble because they will scrutinize details. So you want to be sort of vague on certain points. But when I'm done with a job where I'm donating my time, I make sure they understand the value of it was what, what it was that I gave them. It wasn't zero because I donated it. It had a value associated with it. And it makes it much easier next time uh, when you have to talk to them about an actual paying job or somebody they know. And we had a, another poll that was in the chat. This poll was, if you are, if you were on the receiving end, how did you handle it? The receiving end of a difficult conversation. 79% said they accepted and changed. 16% said chase, uh, chose to dispute and 5% decided to quit. Let's move on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, so far we've talked about difficult conversations from a manager to their subordinates. How do you create a workplace and culture where subordinates feel comfortable communicating difficult or uncomfortable issues to you, the manager? Nigel. So I think there's a few things you, first of all, you have to let them know that you are open for feedback. And that might be uh, how you talk about the culture, how you engage with them. Um, second thing is when you talk to your team, be open, ask them questions, probe for feedback if you want it and you should always want it. Be, and if you get bad feedback, don't argue, listen. And as we've talked about, accept it and moderate behavior. But mostly, you, what the behavior you model will be the behavior that others around you adapt to. And if you model the behavior that is open and listening and takes feedback and changes, then everyone else around you will fit that. If you model the opposite, they will be the opposite too. Nigel? I'm sorry, Mitchell. I would uh, build on what Nigel just said, which is great advice, uh, with don't try to be their friend. You can't be their friend and be their boss at the same time. It's how you might want it to be, but it's not going to work for your to your benefit somewhere down the line. So you've got to maintain that certain lofty position of being the boss when it means being the boss. And um, it's hard for me because, again, I'm Mr. Fun Guy, and uh, it's time to get down to business it's tough to do it when you're their friend. And Peter. So I, I will uh, also support Nigel's conversation. Certainly he and I went to the same management schools at one point in time in our careers. But there's one other thing you do, in a, particularly in a large corporation, there's to develop the culture. You also have to offer the employee an alternate path to give feedback on the manager that is penalty-free. Um, you know, when we worked for the IBM company, it was called the open door policy. Um, and that was, it was a penalty free path through the HR system that would bring in a completely independent investigator into the process. Next question. Chad Lafarge from Columbia, Missouri. What legalese have you added to your event documentation that's surprised by how much trouble they spared you? Jason? Oh, I got three words for you here. The non-recursive edit. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Nigel? Uh, I don't add any legalese to my stuff. I let lawyers and attorneys do that. I'm not one. I don't play one. Um, and there's this great thing called the phone. It's so much better than an email. Mitchell? Yeah, the incoming legalese is what usually gets me. And one that I got surprised with uh, some time ago 
was the client decided somewhere along the line that they would own everything that you did. They would own the footage. They would own the music you used. They would own any stock footage, um, anything. And it's just, you can't accommodate those kinds of uh, add-ons. Somebody decided it was a good idea to do it, but the reality is you can't accommodate that. And Bill? I faced the same thing Mitch did. You know, I started with the biggest company that I worked for. They were 50 or 60 stores. They ended up being uh, 1,200. And over the course of time, I saw the strictures get tougher and tougher. And at some point, I remember I thought, you know, this is really bad contract language. We hadn't had contracts. It was all shake hands for many years. And then all of a sudden, these were the formal agreements. And you're right. A lawyer wrote that to do nothing but protect the corporation and for the corporation to own everything and you have no rights at all and whatever. And you have to come to that point where you say, I'm either going to keep doing this or I'm not. And you don't have the resources to go up against a 500 person lawyer legal team if you're just a small operator. So you're either going to say, I'm going to capitulate and sign the document and continue to work for them, or I am not. And that's the only choice you really have. Next question. From Hashid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida. Does the panel think talks around accessibility becomes of those difficult conversations, or do you think different? Jason? I'd be remiss if I had any right to tell to tell you what is difficult for you. I can tell you that um, in the long run, you should never feel bad about this because the law is on on your side as far as the ADA is concerned. Um, I would I would slough this off and simply say, I know you want to be ADA compliant. Here's the law, and um, you know how can how can you comply with the law? You know, let's talk about it. Um, as far as whether or not that turns into a difficult conversation, oh boy, it shouldn't because the places that are compliant are going to to tap into a resource um, a talent pool that is you know, in, in many ways, better at other things. Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, I can't tell uh, the, the person that has an accessibility issue what they can and they can't do. I do wish I had more applications because a lot of people just assume, well, they would never hire me. And that's not the way it should be. Next question. Next question from Alexander Knight, Vancouver, BC, Canada. Has anyone employed the 360 performance review tactic? And if so, how well did that work in your organization? Could you quantify improvements? Nigel. I think if your organization forces 360 on you without a process, uh, it never works. It's never useful and it just becomes a, a zone for people to complain. If you are stuck in the middle of one, the only thing you can do is learn from it, absorb it and try and do it. I have to tell you the most useful thing is to ask yourself the question, would I benefit from a 360 review? And the answer to that question is always yes. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, looks like the last question here. Alex, you mentioned that in many cases, walking away is the best course of action when a situation is truly going downhill with no way out. What techniques can work when you can't walk away from the situation? Family issues, for example. Uh, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is always the <laughs> the challenge, and then you really have to think about how you, what you're willing to do and what you're willing to manage. You know, I've definitely worked in in situations where I wasn't necessarily happy about where I was or who I was working for, and in then in in there, I, I have to admit that I, you know, I I took on what do I think I can change, what do I think is going to stay the same, and you know, where can I put myself in a place that allows me to do what I need to do. Um, and I may not get everything I want. 
<laughs> like, you know, like, you know, and I mean, it may not be a perfect situation and I may, you know, and, and I, and I have to admit that I've definitely been in situations where I just decide, okay, how do they want to do this? You know, like, and, and then, and then just, you know, if I, if I decide that there's nowhere for me to go and that there doesn't seem to be a lot of openness, you'll, I will very quickly just close that hatch on what, on what I'm trying to get done. And I'll just do what's asked for. And it's also something as someone who manages, I, I'm very careful to try to avoid because what you don't want is people to just, you, you, what I tend to do is what you tend not to want someone to do, which is that I'm going to cease to, I'm going to cease to argue about it. I'm going to cease to push forward. I'm going to ask you what you want to do. And then I'm going to do that thing. And some people really want that. They just want everyone around them to do what they ask them for. It's just that you don't get the most out of that person. Oftentimes, you know, I'm always asking, you'll find that a lot of times if someone will come up with a suggestion, I might push back a little bit for a little bit, but unless I really have a great reason for it and I assume that person is really working on it, I'll oftentimes just give them the run with it. You know, I'll ask, you know, if I'm my audio engineer, you know, Brian or, 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 or other folks that I, you know, or Mickey or someone, I'll ask them, what do you think? Like, how should we approach this? And I'm always asking people that work around me, how do you, I mean, if I hired them, you know, how do you think we should do this? You know, and I, I wanted to get that input and then I, and then I move forward, but people aren't asking me for that. And I'm in a situation, or even if they're a little, I mean, I've definitely worked in situations where they're a little abusive, but if I decide I can't go anywhere, I figure out how to make it work. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm, I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything else about it. I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of uh, align to that. Now, that usually meant that I was aligning to that. I did exactly what I needed to do. I did what I, you know, what I call, you know, MVP, you know, like minimum viable product, which is that I will do exactly what was asked for me, you know, for me to do while I apply for other jobs. You know, so, so like, you know, so I'm, I'm looking for a way to go somewhere else. Um, if I, if I get kind of hammered into a, into that, into that kind of hole. Bill? The nuclear option for me, if I'm in that kind of conflict is, uh, look them straight in the eye and say, there can only be one director here. It's either going to be you or me, you choose. And Mitchell. My dad, who was a very successful businessman, and he gave me a great piece of advice. Pick your battles. You can't win them all. So true. And honesty, as a friend said, is the best policy. Well, there we go. We wrapped up another Monday show. Thank you so much, producers, for all of your questions. And I saw the flood of conversation happening in the chat. So if you're watching, you want to quickly get into the chat to glean some of that information and our backend team for without which this couldn't be possible. And of course, our panelists, thank you for your insights and all of your feedback and this week coming up tomorrow tuesday second hour brainstorming so it looks like the education and video councils all have their weeks planned we need your help so that you can tell us exactly what you would like to see as we close out the year and on wednesday the remotes have a new release our office hours um community band so you want to be here on Wednesday for that. And for the rest of the week, the schedule, you can go to officehours.global and we are out. Well, actually one more, 50,000 miles, 81,000 kilometers. That's how far our, our global community has reached today. So thank you so much for watching and we hope to see you in after hours. Bye. Boy, my arms are tired. That's a lot of, lot, lot of movement there. Remember the old difficult conversation, the squeaky wheel always gets put in the trunk. <laughs> Courtney, I need a list of all your idioms. I need all, all, all.
a book somewhere. Yes. Comes to performance. It's not what you preach. It's what you tolerate. Thank you.